There's a wonderful foundation named Planet Heritage, and it's two people that actually met through our community, and they created a foundation, and that foundation has done amazing work. And one of the uh, movements that they've gotten behind is um, through this gentleman, Jeffrey Smith, that I'm about to announce. And so I knew him from them, and then my brother brought Jeffrey to my house, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago for Thanksgiving, and he had this smile and this kindness and this heart that was pretty pretty amazing. And I found out he was behind the GMO movement. And then from that day on, every time I go grocery shopping and I see that non-GMO sign on the food, I think, I know, that's Jeffrey's, that's Jeffrey's work. So um, just to give you a little bit of context, because there's a lot that goes into a movement and something as big as what we're about to learn. But about 17 years ago, we were talking about South Africa yesterday. So I thought I'd mention 17 years ago, based on Jeffrey's visit there, the, um, the public shunned, especially more specifically, the milk sellers and the dairy shunned genetically modified bovine in their food. And the government put a temporary ban on GMOs in animal feed because they realized that GMOs were harmful and that it's not just what goes in our body, but it actually goes, what goes into the animal's feed that also goes into our body. And that was just a visit. And uh, as a result of him visiting Taiwan, the government put a ban on GMOs and children's foods at school, which is huge. And that was just a visit. And then Croatia, the head of the uh, FDA said, before Jeffrey's visit, they didn't even know that genetically modified foods could be dangerous. It was a light bulb that went off because of Jeffrey's visit. He's been doing this for 25 years. He's crisscrossed the globe, meeting with the heads of nations, letting them know how dangerous these foods are. He's literally created a movement. He has personally trained over 10,000 activists. He's written two pivotal, bo pivotal books, which I absolutely insist that everybody pick up and read at some point. He's made five documentaries, and now the Institute for Responsible Technology is on to the next spec best and most important thing. It's not just the GMOs and the food. He's going to explain today that literally this movement might save the planet. It's really important, so welcome, Jeffrey Smith. Wow. Amber, thank you. And Amber, I think that we all touch source in different ways, and when we have a big aspect to source, a big way of receiving it, that's what I call superpowers. This loving community today, you know, in three days, we're just like this. This is your superpower. So thank you for bringing us this amazing, yeah, yeah, I know it. you're pointing away to others. That's what you do, but yes, we feel that. Um, where is the clicker? Okay. I have an easy question for you. When you have a chance to eat organic, how many people prefer to eat organic? That was just too easy. Now here's a harder one. What percentage of your diet is organic? And I'm talking about not just at home, but when you go out to eat and you're traveling. Think of a number. Be bold. How many are 0 to 20%? Raise your hand. 20 to 40, raise your hand. 40 to 60, raise your hand. 60 to 80? 80 to 100. All right. So now for those that eat a lot of, of non-GMO organic food, how many people noticed a change in their health? Okay. Any examples? Your entire medical history wouldn't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Allergies. Very common. Anyone else notice an improvement? There's not. All right, good. Anyone else? Another issue? Yeah. 
stomach issues, digestion, very, very popular. At one, at a huge hall, a woman yelled out at one point in this question, erectile dysfunction. <laughs> so I immediately said, okay, raise your hand if you had erectile dysfunction. <laughs> so I have been working for 25 years and one of the major goals in my work is to get a critical number of people to move their percentage up. To move their percentage up. And it has been, I asked you about organic, but actually for 20 years it was about non-GMO. There's a strategy. If a certain small percentage of the population that shop at regular grocery stores choose the products that say non-GMO, the companies that sell the GMO-laden foods will start to lose market share to their shelf mates that have a non-GMO label. And that's the tipping point. So we were going for 5%, one out of 20 people to shift their diets, to shift their choices to non-GMO. And we now know that 51% of Americans and 48% of the world's consumers now believe that GMO foods are unsafe. And although not everyone makes decisions based on their beliefs, we have more people than we need. The tipping point is underway. And normally, if I'm giving a talk about the dangers of GMOs, I will talk about the three culprits. The GMO itself causes massive collateral damage in the DNA, allergens, toxins, carcinogens, new diseases. We talk about the animal feeding studies, et cetera, et cetera. The Roundup sprayed on these genetically modified organisms. They take new DNA, put it into soy, corn, cotton, canola, sugar beets, alfalfa, so that those crops can withstand sprays of Roundup that would normally kill them. The Roundup gets absorbed into the food. We eat the food. Roundup damages virtually every foundation of health. And then there's the corn that produces the toxin to kill insects, and we eat this insecticide with the corn. And it's been found in high concentrations. It pokes holes in human cells, which might create leaky gut. It creates immune responses like allergies, not just to BT, but to other things. And so in a normal talk for the last 25 years, when my goal is to get everyone in the room in the 60 to 100% in terms of going forward, I would first have to discredit those organizations that tell you GMOs are safe. In the United States, it's the FDA and Monsanto, and I want to thank them for making it so easy to discredit them. <laughs> it's remarkable. It was Monsanto's former attorney who was in charge of FDA policy over GMOs. He ignored the scientists at the FDA, claimed that there's no difference, we don't need to label them, you don't need to safety test them, and Monsanto doesn't even have to tell the FDA if it wants to put a GMO on the market. And after signing and sending that as U.S. policy, which still holds today, he became vice president for Monsanto. And then later, the U.S. foods are back at the FDA. So we explain these stories. We talk about how Monsanto, in particular, is such a great nemesis. I just love getting their stories, how they rig research. It's absolutely stunning what they get away with. And we talk about how they attack scientists, and of course they've attacked me, and I ignore it because I was just going for a small percentage. Fine if they've convinced some people. I just need a small percentage. 
So I describe in the lectures the damaged, I show pictures of the damaged intestines and I show pictures of carcasses and how they look different and, all, and the huge massive tumors that distort the, the shapes of rats. And my favorite, rat testicles that changed from pink to blue after the rats ate genetically modified soy. I love that one. <laughs> but I'm not going to give you that lecture because I have to introduce a new existential threat. I know it's not what everyone's looking for, another existential threat at this time, but it's absolutely necessary that we understand it. But I'm just going to give you a taste of the old lecture, just so you understand the range of diseases and how many people may be impacted. And first, of course, I have to show you the rat testicle picture. <laughs> and take a, slow, a long, slow drink of water to affect half the audience. <clears throat> It's easy to get women to change their diet. Sometimes they just have to let this one burn into the imagination of the men. Okay, so I've asked about 150 groups the question, what have you gotten better from when you switched to non-GMO and largely organic foods? And it was the same thing. In fact, I went to medical conferences and asked the doctors, what did your patients get better from? And they're talking about thousands of patients each. And there were 28 different conditions that were coming up regularly. So I took them and I put them into a survey and we surveyed 3,256 people. And they were getting better from the same disorders that the people in the 150 lectures got better from. The number one, you mentioned digestion. The number one is always digestion. 85.2% of the respondents noticed an improvement in their digestion and not a small improvement. In many cases, it was completely gone. We have digestive problems, fatigue, overweight or obesity, brain fog, anxiety and depression, allergies, sensitivities, and then still above 50%. The range is amazing. In each one of these, we can look at animal feeding studies where the animals suffered from the precursors or actual full-on disorders that people are getting better from. We talked to farmers who put pigs and cows on non-GMO after keeping them on GMO, and there's a change in two or three days. They no longer have diarrhea, and at the, at the doctor's offices that I go to, their people, they lose their Crohn's disease uh, symptoms or the IBD. So it's in the pigs, it's in the, it's in the pets, it's in the humans. We have the clinical experience, we have the animal feeding studies, and now we have the causative pathways. We know the modes of action of Roundup, in some cases GMOs and Bt toxin, and can link them to these diseases. Now, if these diseases are in fact related, and this was published and peer-reviewed in the International Journal of Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine, and in there I pointed out how those three culprits can cause these type of problems. But Americans eat their weight more than their weight in GMOs. So we should see an increase in some of these diseases. So normally I have 35 slides in different diseases. I'm just going to show you 12 of these. This is inflammatory bowel disease. This is just, it's called glyphosate, the chief poison in Roundup. The amount of glyphosate sprayed on soy and corn, which really means the how, how much genetically engineered soy and corn is out there. And you can see it flows up in parallel with the inflammatory bowel disease. I'm going to go through these 12. All I'm going to do is I'll read the title, and you look at this. And sometimes they plot against the glyphosate herbicides, and sometimes both that and the GMOs. In one case, it's on Roundup sprayed on wheat, because Roundup is not just sprayed on GMOs now. 
which is why I'm telling everyone, eat organic. It's sprayed on oats and wheat and barley and the beans and the grains. So eat organic. So here we have deaths from obesity, anxiety, celiac disease, insomnia, hypertension, diabetes, thyroid cancer. There's many cancers I left out. Death from kidney failure. Deaths from Alzheimer's. Deaths from Parkinson's and autism. If this line were perfect in correlation, it would be a one. This is 0.9975. Now, this is correlation. It doesn't prove causation. But in the context of all this other data, it's like a smoking shotgun. And we can understand the causes. So insomnia. Insomnia are circadian rhythms ruled by melatonin. Melatonin comes from serotonin. Serotonin comes from L-tryptophan. It's produced in the gut. That's produced from gut bacteria with the shikimate pathway. And glyphosate stops the shikimate pathway. So we can go, oh yeah, now we know why there's insomnia. We can do the same thing with anxiety, the same thing with cancer. So I'm not going to give this talk, particularly because I'm going to give you all a link to my film, Secret Ingredients. It does it better than the talk. You all get a chance to see it. We do a pre-test and post-test. How much percentage of your diet is organic? And at the end, what percentage do you plan? And it's very effective. It's the kind of thing that someone who is a regular organic person and everyone around them runs away when they start talking about food. <laughs> they don't want to hear it again. They call me and say, it worked. I just showed them the film. And now my sister, my spouse, or my kids are eating organic. So I'm going to send you all a link to that. But first, there is a bigger issue to focus on. A bigger issue to focus on. And there's three components of it. First of all, GMOs are unrecallable from the environment. You release them, they self-propagate, they're there forever. Second, with now GMO 2.0, gene editing is so cheap and easy. You can buy a rudimentary gene editing kit online for $169. For one or $2,000, you can have your own lab and produce new GMOs for the price of dinner. Hello, sweetheart. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us. And then the most common result of genetic engineering is surprise side effects, including gene editing. And it's so bad that the journal Nature described three experiments with gene editing, CRISPR, you've all heard that, done on human embryos and called it chromosomal mayhem. Deletions, additions, reversals, complete loss of sections of chromosomes. And they said these are not detectable in the normal studies done by CRISPR scientists who feel that their products are successful and never sequence the impact of the massive collateral damage. So now, unrecallable from the environment, easy to produce, prone to side effects, a recipe for disaster. What does it mean for everything? Everything with DNA is now being targeted. Every day, I follow the news way more than most people, and there's always labs with yet another target, another organism to genetically engineer. What happens in the next generation? 
when every high school lab is equipped with a CRISPR lab. With people can do it from home, with virtually all these new students going out saying, let's change the nature of this nature. It means that future generations may not inherit the products of the billions of years of evolution, but instead the products of laboratory creations prone to side effects. We could be replacing nature in this generation because we now have achieved that inevitable time in science and human civilization where we can distort, distract, and damage the streams of evolution for all time accidentally. Before it was in terms of invasive species where they released 24 rabbits in Australia in 1859 to make settlers feel more comfortable. By the 1920s, there was over 10 billion rabbits because rabbits multiply like rabbits. Now think about replacing the whole ecosystem. Now, this generation, therefore, with this technology, has a new mandate. Now that we can destroy it all, we need to protect it all. We need to redefine ourselves in relationship to nature. And tragically, the biotech industry saw how effective and successful we were at convincing governments, in particular consumers, about the dangers of GMOs. So when they came out with gene editing, they all got together and huddled and said, here's the talking points. It's safe. It's predictable. It's natural. It just does what other breeding does, but more precisely. These were the same talking points they released with the original GMOs, but they decided to rehash them, and they have convinced governments to completely deregulate gene editing. So you can create a genetically engineered microbe, animal, or plant, and release it in many countries without even telling consumers or the government. Japan, United States, Australia, the UK, was just proposed in Canada. It just happened in India. They're pressuring the EU. It's absolutely urgent because all of our future generations could be cursing us with these decisions happening now. So where do we start? I've been involved and fortunate to help build a movement around the world. So now, what is the strategy to stop this juggernaut? And we asked ourselves, what is the most dangerous organism or organisms to genetically engineer? Any ideas? What you, what you would say? Humans. We're already kind of weird itself. We might as well take us further. Who else? Anyone? Microbiome. The microbiome is the microbial ecosystem at the basis of human health and the environment. In terms of our bodies, we co-evolved with the microbiome, and it's just coming out now how critical this micro-Jedi army is to life on Earth and life inside of us. 80% of our diseases find their source in an imbalance of the microbiome. Why? Because we've outsourced 90% of our metabolic and chemical functions to the microbes living inside us, which is 10 times the amount of cells in our body. If you think about how many people have heard of fecal transplants, for those that haven't, it's kind of shocking. You take poop from one person and put it inside another person. Right? And they've done it on rats, but now they're doing it on humans. You take someone who's healthy, fecal transplant into the unhealthy person, and they get better from a dozen different diseases. 
But if the donor is overweight, now the recipient can get overweight. If the donor is underweight, the recipient can be underweight. There's a programming in the microbiome that we just don't understand. But it's fascinating, as the microbes develop in the baby and become more diverse, the neural network becomes more diverse. At the end of the life, the diversity goes down, the brain neural net goes down. When you reduce the microbiome in the brain, according to one experiment I've heard about, IQ can go down. When there's a breast tumor, the microbes go and protect the breast from, separate from spreading. It is incredible what it does. And because we've co-evolved with it so well, establishing the microbiome in the newborn is essential. <clears throat> with improper establishment, it can affect the health for their entire lives. So that's why milk-digesting bacteria moves into the birth canal in the second trimester to inoculate the baby so they can digest the milk. But a part of the breast milk is indigestible by the baby. It's not designed to feed the baby. It's designed to feed the microbiome. Part of the best breast milk is more microbiome microbes. Same from the nipple. The, the skin has, um, it inoculates about 10% of the microbiome. And now consider this magic. The health of the baby is reflected in the saliva microbiome, which feeds back to the mother, which changes the formula. This has been going on for millions of years, and we are just discovering. Now, it's even more exciting when you look at what happens throughout nature. A trillion different microbes. And we haven't even identified 99.99%. In the handful of soil, there's more microbes, more bacteria than humans on Earth. And when you nurture the microbiome of the soil correctly, you have a whole new agriculture. And of course, Roundup destroys the microbiome. So, I'm going to share with you another link to another film. This one's just 16 minutes. And we talk about the importance of the microbiome with some of the world's experts and a doctor and a biologist, the, the top soil biologist, Dr. Elaine Ingham. She talks about a particular experiment that she was involved in. Actually, she was a professor and one of her graduate students wanted to get a PhD and got permission from these well-meaning scientists to test a particular microbe. And this microbe was about to be released. It was two weeks away from being released. And the graduate student walked into his laboratory and found all of the wheat plants that had been planted in the dirt that had been mixed with this microbe were dead. I'm not going to spoil the plot for you on this 16-minute film, but I asked Dr. Ingham in the film, what would have happened if that microbe had been re released and it spread. And she said, the natural consequence would be the end of terrestrial plant life on the planet. A cataclysm. And we were two weeks away. And that microbe was approved by the EPA. They had done all the tests that the EPA required. It was this random cosmic grace of a graduate student that happened to do its test. Now, would it have wiped out terrestrial plants? We don't know. A bunch of ifs have to be checked off. One is, would it travel? Well, after Dr. Ingham reported some of these results at a UN conference in New York, EPA officials, no, EPA 
workers, not the officials, the workers, the, the whistleblowers approached her and said, we'll tell you how far genetically engineered microbes can spread because we did a secret experiment that has never been acknowledged or publicized. We released genetically engineered microbes in a field in Louisiana and then tested it and saw how far it would move. And within a few years, it was found everywhere on Earth. So the question is, does a microbe then have a survival advantage and take over the niche of its natural counterpart? This particular microbe that we talked about, it's found on every root structure in the planet. And this particular microbe would turn those roots into alcohol and destroy them. Now, we know that they travel. So you release a microbe for some purpose, and it can end up all around the world. We know that they mutate. We didn't need a pandemic to know that microbes mutate, but now everyone knows. We don't know, in general, that microbes swap genes. You release a gene, a, a, create a gene for a microbe in one place. It starts to travel. It has bacterial sex with all these different microbes, and now they all carry that gene. So now you have 1,000 or 10,000 different types of microbes in 10,000 different ecosystems where they can permanently damage or collapse those ecosystems. So we need to lock it down. And GMOs add another level of complexity because they're prone to side effects. Even if it was a perfect genetically engineered microbe, all those other things are possible. Add to that to the fact that you create massive collateral damage, chromosomal mayhem, and it's, it's absolutely a recipe for disaster. So we must lock it down. So the new movement that I am pulling together the resources for over the last year and a half or so, our GMO 2.0 movement, it's focused on government laws, international treaties, domestic, federal government, state, local. We need to lock it down. But I know from my own experience, we can't rely on longevity of government policy. I was flown to, the, to Poland by the Polish government years ago and gave a press conference with the Minister of Environment praising the government's GMO policy. They had a great GMO policy until the week later when a pro-GMO government was voted into place. Similar thing happened in Thailand. So we can't rely just on government to do the right thing. So we need popular culture. We need everyone to know about this, just like climate change. Many people, when they hear about this, put it on the level of climate change, yet most people here didn't know anything about it. It has to be deeply understood, institutionalized in academia. Children need to hear about it. The institutional review boards in universities need to make sure there's no research of releasing genetically engineered microorganisms in their watch. We all know it's logical. You don't give a detonation device for a nuclear bomb to an adolescent and say, don't press the red button. But we don't think, oh, don't give a CRISPR kit to all of the high school biology classes and say, oh, don't order combinations online that might be dangerous. We don't think that way. But now that you've heard it, it makes a lot of sense which is one of the incredible opportunities. One of the incredible advantages of our GMO 2.0 movement is that it's easy to convey the information. That 16-minute film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, it does it. It's so clear. Now, in addition, 
The pandemic has created receptor cells opening around the world to the dangers of microbes. Everyone knows they can travel and wreak havoc. So this is a silver lining, oddly, of a pandemic that may ultimately protect all living beings and all future generations by stirring the imagination that what if? And people are already thinking about the GMO side of microorganisms in gain of function. It doesn't matter really, in this case, whether the pandemic was created by a lab leak or not. But now everyone is aware that one aspect of genetic engineering is to enhance the infectious ability or the impact of potentially pandemic pathogens to study them. And with about a thousand laboratory accidents reported, it doesn't make sense to create a potentially pandemic pathogen and then expect that lab to hold it safely. So we, since the pandemic, have adopted two focuses, two goals, very simple. No gain of function enhancement of potentially pandemic pathogens indoors and no release of GMO microbes of any type outdoors where they can create pandemic-like health problems for humans and the environment. Now, fortunately, we don't have to build a movement from scratch. We are in a rush, but we have natural allies. How many people have heard of regenerative agriculture? Regenerative agriculture works with the soil, and one of the things that it does, in addition to improving crop yields and reducing the need for chemicals, is it draws down carbon. There's enough ability that if you take maybe three quarters of the current agricultural lands in the world and beyond that, the grasslands, etc., and improve the microbes, you can draw down 100% of all carbon emissions annually per year. And then if you lower carbon emissions at the same time, you can achieve pre-industrial levels. But if they're successful and we're not, they fail. Because if a microbe comes and destroys the ability of the soil microbiome to draw down, then they will never be able to achieve their goals. Environmental conservation. We talked about a devastating potential bad actor, well-meaning. Ocean conservation. Algae can swap genes with bacteria and algae. They want to genetically engineer algae to produce biofuels. What happens if that or other microbes come and interfere with its ability to do photosynthesis? It produces 70% of the oxygen. It's the lungs of the planet. Not the, not the rainforest. And yet, once you release it into the ocean, you don't know what's going to happen. Invasive species control, the invasive species from hell, the microbes you can't see, you can't track, you can't recall, and they spread to other organisms. Human health, of course, there's been over 50,000 studies in the last six years on human health and the microbiome, and national security. Homeland security, Department of Defense, they're freaking out about CRISPR right now. It's in our white papers and our legislative reports. We just quote that side of the government in terms of the technology has outpaced regulation, you think? So we need the most influential, the most creative, the most visionary people as part of our team because we're in a rush. But I also... I remember early when we talked about Olivia Newton-John's statement about it's a gift. Where do we want to be with this? Is the job simply to prevent release or is there some 
silver lining to this. I think this is an opportunity for a leap forward where human beings realize we've come to the edge. We're being threatened now with our survival and we need to step up. This is what happens to individuals at key moments. There's certain ways that those individuals see the hope and get support, have a way out. We need to build that messaging into this movement. So I never let my normal, the sections of my earlier lectures, I would say, this is the section of my lecture called Doom, De Destruction, Doom, Despair. Don't leave in the, in the middle, you'll feel terrible. Wait till the end when I talk about the positivity. I can't leave an audience just like, oh no. We actually can turn this around. Humanity has leaped forward and technology is forcing our hand. Now what would happen to humanity if we said we need to safeguard nature? We need to love the microbiome and the gene pool and protect it. It would be a stepping up in ways that could affect all these different areas of life. So many things. So this is our goal, to create an earth of tree huggers, an earth that says we are choosing, taking the responsibility to protect our planet. And it starts with individuals. The individual taking responsibility has been worked out of the system in so many ways. The US education system was, was fashioned out of the Prussian education system to create good soldiers. We give away our power to our teachers, to, to our government, to media. That's the epidemic that allowed GMOs in. Someone else's responsibility, they'll take care of it. So part of this movement is not just protecting nature, but also recapturing that level of personal responsibility to step forward and say, this is my planet, this is my relationship, I will step up and take care of it. Thank you. We have time for questions. We have time for questions. Who, has, who wants to ask a question? Yeah, so um, I'm kind of curious because a lot of us in this room right now are able to fight that fight. Mm -hmm. um, but for people who are unable to, can't afford to, who aren't in a position um, to buy organic food and who, like low-income families, it's, it's difficult. Um, is there anything that we can do to yeah. increase that to not just people who can afford it, but to those who are unable to, to those who aren't even aware because lack of education or anything similar to that. Beautiful. So this is regarding the food, which is not necessarily the microbiome. And this is a question I've been asked a lot. And we have partnered or we're in partnering now with a organic food distribution company that delivers at wholesale prices to groups, 3,000 groups around the country. We've, um, I have a 90-day lifestyle upgrade which teaches people how to save time and save money. They watch the film, Secret Ingredients, they get freaked out. They want to be 80 to 100%. They don't know how to cook. They don't know how to buy. And they don't have the money. So we train people in that. But there's also ways that individuals can get involved in this protecting nature movement. On our website for part of last year, we experimented with a, an advocacy platform where you can go in, enter your information and all of your elected officials show up. And in a single click, or if you customize it a little longer, they get 
the campaign of the month, the legislative report, the white paper, the article, the film. Tens of thousands have been sent. You keep, you keep in the platform and you see all of your local and regional media. You hit a click and now there's a press announcement from someone in their area. And then there's social media. So we're able to democratize. Now we're building with one of the top um, messaging companies. They work with Apple and Google and Southwest and Visa. A training program so that when people are interested, we give them a drip feed so that they become empowered and knowledgeable. Some of them will become leaders. And what do we do with those leaders? We're building the back office, so to speak, so we can have leaders all over the world. And we work globally. I mean, having, fixing it in the United States is not going to fix it. So when you go on the advocacy platform, we had all of the elected officials in Europe and the UK and Australia and Canada in, in here. And we're now also doing translations of a film that I'm about to release in seven languages so we can equip the non-GMO organizations around the world. Thank you so much. That was so educational and inspiring to get involved and, and make lifestyle changes. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to stay in touch and hear how we can do more. Um, my question is, I'm curious um, what you say to people that are advocating for GMOs, for, say, like the golden rice that yeah. is, you know, a rice that's been modified to include all the basic nutrients that's being sent to very impoverished countries and... Um, you know, folks are kind of saying that this is, this is fighting death by starvation. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's interesting having debated the pro-GMO side actually in rooms and also with general information. They can make a statement from their side that takes 10 seconds. Golden rice will protect the blindness of millions of people because it has vitamin A. To refute it takes a little longer. But there are scientific arguments which make their argument absolutely silly and dangerous. A friend of mine who worked at the Salk Institute did a published study showing, yeah, they're changing the retinoic acid pathway which can lead to blindness and birth defects. And there are natural rice varieties that have more vitamin A. And their golden rice needs to have fat in order to convert the beta carotene to something that's assimilable. And these are impoverished countries that don't have fat in their diet. And on and on and on. And, the, and I've spoken to the world's experts at feeding the world. And no, it's, they rejected GMOs as completely irrelevant to feeding the world. It doesn't even increase average yield, but yield itself is not the source of the goal. So it's a long answer. We've been down that road a thousand times, and I'm not going to go further than that. But you've got to taste. We have the talking points, and we train people to give them. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.